This is recording number 10750 from the Teaching Ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Vallejo, California. This is the fourth message in the Embracing Your Destiny series by Randy Bolt. It was recorded on Sunday morning, February 17th, 2008. This message is titled Fail Forward. We're going to continue our, our current uh, study called Embracing Your Destiny. We're looking at the book of Joshua, which is in the Bible for the purpose of showing us how we can actually uh, live in the place of God's uh, promises and God's destiny, His plans for our lives. We're into the home stretch. We've talked about how embracing your destiny means to face your future, to chart your course, to surrender self, to persist and persevere, to prize purity. And today we're going to be talking about how embracing your destiny means to fail forward. Fail forward. Turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Joshua chapter 9. We're going to read... Uh, from a number of verses from chapters 9 and 10. Now, when I was in my early 20s, I was traveling around the country performing in a Christian rock band. In those days, the Christian music industry didn't exist like it does today. And so, consequently, we were not treated like celebrities, you know, chauffeured around town in limousines and, and uh, staying at、uh, first class hotels and stuff. In fact, Our agent,、uh, well, in fact, we would, drive, we, we would drive around the country in a van to, towing a trailer full of our, our gear, and、uh, we had this kind of、uh, leopard skin couch inside the van. Don't ask me why, I think we got it at a thrift store. But,、uh, and then we had these kind of bunk beds in the back, and we had six guys, five band members, and our sound man in this van. And we'd travel usually about eight hours a day in that thing. So we'd go a little nuts and stir crazy. And that'll, that'll have bearing on what I'm about to tell you. So just keep that in mind. But anyway, it, was no, it wasn't any big,、uh, you know, we weren't flying around the country in jets and like that. In fact, our, our、uh, agent would usually arrange for us to、uh, have lodging with families from local churches in the cities where we would perform. And、uh, so one night after a concert, we loaded up all of our gear and we, were, we got the directions and maps to the various homes where the guys were going to be staying. And we drove off to distribute everyone to the place where, where, to the homes where they would be staying. And we got to the first house and、uh, opened the door, and our guitar player got out with his suitcase and he, he wa- walked up the, the walk to the front door. And we just waited there until he got to the front door and then we drove off. Now, what he didn't know. Was that we had purposefully left him off at a stranger's house. And、uh, so he, he, he knocked on the door, and、uh, they, somebody opened the door, and, and、uh, there before them was some guy they'd never met before and weren't expecting with his suitcase saying, Here I am. And、uh, We drove around the block slowly enough that his embarrassment and、uh, then ultimately panic had reached its zenith. And then we came around and picked him up and rescued him. Now, you know,、uh, even though the rest of us were 
were uh, doubled over in laughter, uh, he was not happy. No one enjoys being deceived. Have you ever been the brunt of a, brunt of a practical joke or taken advantage of? It's no fun. Now, this week as we continue our study of the Bible's book of Joshua titled Embracing Your Destiny, we're going to be looking at a very critical episode in the process of the Israelites taking possession of their land of promise and their successful advance. We've been, you know, we've been following them along. Now, their successful continued advance hinges on how they respond to being deceived by a group of people called the Gibeonites. So let's start reading chapter 9, Joshua, verses 1 through 6. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the low land, excuse me, in the hills and in the low land and in the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hittite, and the uh, Jebusite, all these ites, these are nations, peoples that lived there in Palestine, and they heard about it. Verse 2. They gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon, another city or nation state, heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai. Now remember, we have covered this ground where the children of Israel had done battle and conquered the cities of Jericho and Ai. And the Gibeonites have heard about this. Verse 4. When they heard about it, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. Now, God had instructed the Israelites that they were to dispossess the people of the nation states that had uh, been occupying Palestine. That's because these people had become... Intensely corrupt, depraved, idolatrous, and wicked. And God knew if his people engaged in commerce, intermarriage, and other forms of interaction with them, their ungodliness would seep into the fabric of Israel's uh, culture and the Jews would become equally corrupt. This chapter, Joshua 9, begins after the Jews had already conquered the cities of Jericho and Ai, and word of these victories had quickly spread to the surrounding kingdoms. They had come to understand that unless they took serious action, these other nation states that were in Palestine, they'd come to understand that unless they do something quick and take serious action, they'd all meet the same fate as Jericho and Ai. So the leaders of a number of these nations decided to band together and stage a united resistance against the people of Israel. But one group, the Gibeonites, they decided to try an alternative approach. And they devised this elaborate scheme where they they, um, dressed up in old clothes and they took 
mold, old moldy bread and they, they took wineskins that were torn and tattered, the whole thing, you read it there, so that they would appear as though they were from far outside of Palestine because the, the Jews were under orders from God to expel, to dispossess every, every uh, nation state that currently occupied Palestine for the reasons I've already articulated. So they came from this uh, other uh, approach and said, instead of uh, trying to battle against Israel, they tried to trick them into making an, a covenant, a treaty, a peace treaty with them. And they tried to uh, pull the wool over their eyes, making them think that they weren't from that area, that they were from some faraway place. Now, let me be absolutely clear with you about something. The devil hates you. And everything about you. And this is because he hates God and God loves you. It's also because the devil knows the threat that you pose to his domain. Your redeemed life poses an incredible threat to the kingdom of darkness. Most of us are, are, we carry on our lives without that awareness, but uh, the devil knows. And so that's why he hates you. And I don't say these things to, to frighten you or anything like that. There's no need to be frightened, but to sober you. I want you to think soberly about your life, how important you are. Now, just as surely as God has a plan for your destiny... The devil has a plan too. He is strategic. That means he has a strategy about ruining you and all that God has planned for you. However, he's kind of a pragmatist. And if you successfully press through his initial attempts to get you to back off from this whole thing about embracing God's destiny for your life like the Israelites did when they weren't turned back by the massive walls of Jericho. They, they hung in there and let God, you know, give them a victory over this massive fortified city. Like they did when they were at first repelled by the people of Ai. And they, they got in there and dealt with their sin. And then they pressed on and they let God give them victory over Ai. They weren't turned back by the bark of the, uh, of the roar of the, of the fangless uh, devil. But trust me, when you embark on this journey of saying, all right, God, if you have a plan for my life, I want to embrace it, you're going to get barked at. <laughs> you're going to get roared at. But if you, if you wi- don't wither under that initial assault and you keep pressing in, Well, the devil is a, like I said, he's a pragmatist. And what he'll do is he'll try an alternative approach. What he'll do is he'll try, he'll adapt and try to deceive you into at least making some form of treaty with him, some sort of accommodation with him. And he will try to trick you into allowing him to occupy territory on the edges of your life where he can quietly continue to work polluting your destiny. That was the goal of the Gibeonites. Just, you know, 
tri- trick them into signing a peace treaty with us, and then you know, we'll just carry on with our business over here. Um, the devil is very deceptive. Let's read verses 9 and 10. Chapter 9. So they said to him, the Gibeonites are saying to Joshua, so they said to him, from a very far country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan who were at Ashtaroth. And they're talking about, they're describing historic Jews, the, the Jewish history the recent history of the Israelites before they'd crossed Jordan and these kings that are, and cities that are uh, described here were, were people that the Israelites had done battle with on the other side of Jordan before they'd come into Palestine. So they're demonstrating a remarkable awareness and knowledge of the historical events uh, of the Jewish people. Listen, uh, the devil knows you. The, he is effective precisely because he knows our past he knows our traumas our aspirations and our weaknesses and he will attempt to use that knowledge to craft a presentation designed uniquely for you one that will convince you to let down your guard now look at verse 14 To me, these are some of the saddest words in all of the Bible. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions. In other words, they examined some of this old moldy bread. But they did not ask the counsel of the Lord. Our adversary, the devil, is convincing. He is so convincing. And he can sound so rational. We can find ourselves making disastrous choices about critical issues in our lives based on our senses or our intellect instead of listening for the voice of God, seeking the voice of God. Remember the temptations that Jesus underwent in the wilderness? The first one appealed to the raw desires of his flesh and made so much sense. I mean, he was starving His body was beginning to feed on itself after 40 days of fasting. Why not simply turn a few stones into bread? It was a perfect solution to a a seriously pressing need. What possible harm could come from that? Have you ever been uh, presented with a temptation like that in your life? It sounds so reasonable, so rational. Why not? The second temptation that Jesus endured in the wilderness, during that, the devil even quoted extended passages of scripture, building a spiritual case for the reasonableness of Jesus proving he was the Messiah by jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. Now, I hate to even say this because I'm so ashamed of it, but when my wife and I were, and I'm not implicating her, it wasn't her fault, but when we were very, um, just married, we were in a time when, during the time when I was uh, playing in the, in the band and stuff, and I, I made a series of disastrous uh, errors in judgment based on 
the, the temptations. The, the, the devil knew how badly I wanted to play music and how, how badly I wanted to stop working at the mattress factory I was employed in and how badly I wanted to get out of those classes at Bible college. And so he presented me this rational, reasonable, made so much sense kind of a thing. And, and I went for it. But one of the complications of it was that we no longer had any money. <laughs> And so, the devil came at me with the scriptures. And he said, you know, the Bible says, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. You don't need to work. And I would say, well, uh, yeah, but my checkbook balance says zero. Ah, but the Bible says... We walk by faith, not by sight. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I just started writing checks and sending them all over town. And I'm thinking, well, by the time they get to my bank, God will have supplied. Well, you know, God doesn't bless sin. But at the time, I can't, I mean, now, like I said, I'm so ashamed of it. It seems so, so blatantly idiotic. But at the time, it seemed so spiritual even. I don't know if you've ever encountered that diabolic scheme, but man, he'll use it. The third temptation of Jesus uh, involved the devil giving him or offering him legitimately, by the way, legitimately offering him a shortcut to the mission that he had come for, which was to save, to redeem the kingdoms of men. He offered them to him. Here, I will give you the kingdoms of this world. You don't have to go to the cross. All you, you got to do is just worship me. I'll, I will give you. I mean, and don't you know that... In some place in the Savior's humanity, for he was fully human as well as human divine, uh, 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 as well as divine, fully divine. Don't you know that somewhere in there, in the human part of him, there was the thought, well, this is such a crisp, simple solution. Why not go for it? It would save so much time, effort, pain, and not to mention bloodshed. I mean, our, our adversary is very, very clever and very very convincing. Have you, I've already rhetorically asked this question several times, but I'm going to ask it again. Have you ever been taken in by the devil's deceptions? If so, I want to ask you to acknowledge it by joining me in standing to your feet. If you're listening by recording, everyone in the room stood up. We've all failed in this way. So now what do we do? Have we, by reason of our falling prey to these deceptions, have we forfeited our destinies? Have a seat. 
the real question to ask is, is not, have we forfeited our destinies? I, I want to leave that hanging in the air unanswered for the moment. But it's not really the question we need to be asking. The question we need to ask is, how can we fail forward? In other words, are there ways we can welcome the redeeming power of, the, of our gracious God to take the ruins of our failure and use them to build steps that will lead us out of the dungeon of defeat into the light of destiny. Now let's continue looking at the Israelites' example for what to do when you've been had. And let's read verses 16 and 19 of chapter 9. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, the Gibeonites, that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. So they've realized they have been taken. They've been had. Verse 19, Then all the rulers said to all the congregation, these are the Israelites speaking, the leaders of Israel, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. The first thing Joshua and the other leaders did was to own their failure. They didn't try to cover it up. They didn't try to excuse it or save face. They looked it straight in the eye and called it what it was. Failure. Now verse 27. And that day Joshua made them, the the Gibeonites, woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. The second thing they did was to press the Gibeonites into the service of God. They brought their failure to the only one capable of turning the situation around. They brought it to God. Now the third step in this recovery process is found in chapter 10, verses 6, 7, and 9. And let's read those. And the men of Gibeon went to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us, for the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. Verse 9, So Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched, marched all night from Gilgal. In this passage, we see the alliance of nations that had been formed against the Israelites. Remember at the beginning of chapter 9, I told you that all the other nation states in Palestine had decided to get together to form an allied military front to confront Israel. In these verses, we're reading about this Alliance that has been formed against the Israelites responding to the peace treaty that the Gibeonites had entered into uh, with the Jews because they were afraid now that things were even worse because the, the Gibeonite military was now aligned with, with the Israelites. And so it was even a, a more desperate situation for them. So they decided to take a gamble and attack Gibeon. They figured that if they, if they assaulted the Gibeonites, uh, that they, they were betting that the Israelites wouldn't come to their aid. That they'd been tricked into this 
um, alliance and that the Israelites wouldn't care enough about the Gibeonites to come to help them. And so they figured, the, the rest of them all figured, if we can take down Gibeon, then we've, we've minimized the threat and we can go back just to worrying about Israel. Are you following me so far? So that's their plan. But Joshua make the un, made the unexpected decision to defend Gibeon. And in fact, he marched the Israeli army all night to do so. And in this surprising action, we see the next key to failing forward, which is to resist exploitation. Because the devil will always press his attack on our points of failure, our wounds and our weakened places. When you stood up a while ago and said, hey, I I know what it is to, to fall prey to the devil's deceptions. Those places become sore spots in our life. Like I was describing that, that time in my life I'm very ashamed of, but the check-kiting in episodes. But th- that, that's a sore spot, and the devil who will never, ever, ever play fair will always press that button. He'll always go to that place that hurts. Always. And so, the attack was at the point of Israel's failure, Gibeon. And the people of Israel uh, had a choice to make. Do we just decide, oh, you know, it's such a painful episode. We messed up so badly there. We're just going to write that off. Or are we going to run to its aid? Follow me. It's like the Christian woman who came to my office one day after discovering that her husband had an affair. And she, uh, with tears in her eyes, you know, she said, we've never had a good marriage, and this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. I, I can't take this anymore. Ever since I came to Christ some time ago, he's been ridiculing me and making my life miserable. I'm just done with this. And I, you know, and she knew that, that uh, Jesus in the scriptures had approved of, of divorce on the basis of adultery. And she saw this as her opportunity to, uh, you know, cut her losses and uh, just be right off all of that heartache and, uh, you know, that had resulted from what she now believed was a mistake to ever marry him in the first place, all that stuff. And so she just said, I'm going def- to file for divorce. And I, I tried to comfort I, Listen, my heart was breaking for her. I, I understood. I, I tried to comfort her. I told her that I understood and would support her in that decision. But I found myself saying something to her I, I, I hadn't planned on, and it actually was surprised to hear coming out of my mouth. I, I, said, I asked her a question. I said, if your husband would come to faith... And the two of you could enjoy the kind of Christ-honoring, loving marriage you long for. Would it be worth it to you to hang in there in this marriage? Even if it took another 10 years for the Lord to bring that about. She thought about that question quietly for several moments. And then she looked up at me and with an indescribable hope in her eyes... She said, yes, it would. It would be worth it to me. And that woman left my office that day 
marching to the rescue of a wounded place in her life, refusing to allow her pain to be exploited by the devil for the purpose of diminishing her destiny. And the story ended so happily. I mean, it was only a matter of months later that her husband came to Christ and the two of them began experiencing the transforming work of the Lord in their lives and their marriage. But it's that, that choice not to just, you know, I have messed this up so bad. I'm just going to, I'm going to just forget it. We need to decide that I'm not going to, even though I blew it, and even though I've created this mess by my failure, I'm going to hang in here and let God fix it. Let God redeem it. Now look at verses 10 and 11 in relation to that. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. This passage described the Lord, describes the Lord personally routing the armies of the enemy alliance, even bombing them with hailstones. And these verses point out an often missed step in the process that allows us to fail forward. At some point along the way, most of us who choose to walk this path will begin to realize the magnitude of what we've lost or forfeited as a result of falling prey to the satanic deception we all have acknowledged that we've experienced. And we may become deeply resentful, angry, even furious about what the devil has done or taken from us or is in the process of stealing from us. We start to realize that what this has cost us and it ticks us off. But if we allow our natural inclination to rise up and forcefully take uh, action based or fueled by our human passion, we're only going to deepen the pit we've fallen into. Because the Bible says in James chapter 1 verse 20, the wrath of man does not work or produce the righteousness of God. Just because I get humanly ticked off at the devil and decide, I'm going to do something about this. It isn't going to work. It isn't going to work. The wrath of man, the anger, the passions of our humanity are not going to solve these spiritual issues. Failing forward is not about exerting the force of human will and initiative to try and regain the territory of our destiny. It's about coming with a repentant, humble, and obedient heart to our mighty deliverer, trusting him to win the battle for us. Now finally, verses 12 and 13. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten. This passage uh, describes something that's going to 
really trouble some of you. Uh, It makes the outrageous claim that the sun stood still for a 24-hour period so that the Israelites could have extra daylight uh, to um, uh, engage in and turning this defensive battle into an offensive crusade that, trust me, ultimately, and when I say trust me, you don't have to trust me, you can actually read it. But turn, so they can have enough time to turn the tide of this battle from a defensive uh, thing to an offensive crusade that ultimately uh, secured for them all of Palestine. It all hinges on this one event. And all their other enemies fall like dominoes as a result of what happens here. But could this really have happened? I mean, could the rotation of the earth really have been suspended for a day? I mean, the geological and astronomical consequences of such an event blow my mind. There's a lot of stuff spinning out there (laughs) in our solar system. And yet, there it is, right there in the text. In fact, the the writer of the book of Joshua acknowledges the believability challenge here by by referring to a second source when he says, isn't this also written about in in the book of Jasher? You know, it's it's like, don't just take my word for it. It it actually happened and and even someone else wrote about it. This This is a challenge. And I admit it stretches my faith. But I realized a long time ago that once you come to the place in your life where you admit to yourself that you believe in God, the rest of it is downhill from there. Because, by definition, if God is God, if there is a God, He can do stuff like this. Because if He can't, He's not God. He's just a figment of my imagination. He's just some sort of emotional support I depend on. But if he's God, he can do stuff like this. So I've settled it. You you figure out what you need to do about it. I believe that this happened. But the point being made here is not about the brakes being put to our solar system. It's about something far more difficult for most of us to believe. And that is that it's not too late for our destiny. Now Joshua could have easily been and most likely was tempted to allow his hopes for ultimate victory to fade with the light of day. I mean, yeah, things are happening. God is, you know, bombing our enemies with hailstones, but the sun is going to set and this momentum's going to fade and you know what really? Well, who are we kidding? We're just a little group of people. How in the world are we going to measure up to the vast armies of our opposition? How are we ever going to do this? Uh, let's get real here. I, I, don't, I don't think this is going to happen. Surely he was tempted to think things like that. And he must have wondered whether they had, they, because of, of their failures at AI and with Gibeon, that they had sufficiently disqualified themselves that they should just allow their their hopes and sights to be set on something less grand. We do that, don't we? Don't we? We find ourselves in the heat of the battle to move forward from failure and encounter the setting sun. 
And we're tempted to think that it's too late. We've messed this up so bad that we should lower our expectations. You know, I'm 52 years old. And I got a lot of junk in, my, in the wake of my life. Surely it's too late, isn't it? And I'll just, I'll just settle for, you know, being saved and someday going to heaven. I don't know that I can really get my arms around this thing about destiny. But dear one, you and I have a God in heaven for whom there are no limitations. And he loves you and me so much. He will stop the rotation of the planet if that's what it takes in order for his plans for your life to be fully, not partially, fulfilled and realized. There's nothing that limits his ability to fulfill his plans for your life and mine, not even our failures.